0: Our guest this morning is Roger A. Mitchell, Jr., M.D. Dr. Mitchell is a professor and chair of pathology at the Howard University College of Medicine. He is a forensic pathologist who previously served as the chief medical examiner and deputy mayor for Public Safety and Justice of Washington, D.C. He is the author of The Price of Freedom, A Son's Journey. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining
1: us. Kat, it's great to be here.
0: Well, as we were actually discussing uh, before I started recording, for me in this work, uh, the moment that changed me in my life forever was the 2009 execution of Oscar Grant on the Fruitvale BART platform here in Oakley, California.
1: Hmm.
0: Take us back to your moment, 1999 and the New York Police Department murder of Amadou Diallo. What happened to him and how and why did that change your life and thus set the trajectory for what is now this book?
1: Well, I, I was a first year medical student in in Nork, New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey, born and raised. And I was there in my first year and I just finished my first semester. So it was February fourth, nineteen ninety nine, and I come home to uh, to to eat and to watch my my nightly news before heading back out to university to to study. And it was breaking news, unarmed black man gets shot by law enforcement. And it struck me because they talked about him, him and I, Amadou Diallo, we were about the same age at that time. And he was an immigrant out of Africa who was saving his money to pursue his own career, pursue his own life, thinking that he wanted to Go to college here in in America and, and 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 do something special with his life. And he was on his way home and he fit the description. Um, he was asked to, to to show his identification and so he reached for his wallet, pulled his wallet out, and that wallet turned into the reason why he was shot at. He was shot at 41 times, hit 19 he had entrance wounds in the soles of his feet that I would le- later learn and and, and right then um, I realized that I needed to be I needed to be studying police violence I needed to be studying at the time we called it police brutality today I call it death in custody but I needed to understand why and how individuals were dying in and around the criminal legal system And um, my story even starts a little bit earlier. I was an FBI forensic scientist before med school and left the FBI to study violence as a public health issue. And then when Amadou Diallo got killed, um, I I wanted to incorporate death in custody and police brutality in that. And I actually became one of the first to write on death in custody as a um, as a health issue, as a medical student. So shout out to all the students who are looking for their voice. So now 25 years later um, that we're still doing the work.
0: Right. 25 years later, uh, tracking death in custody is still incredibly difficult, which is the subject of your book. You lift up someone that I know well, uh, along with her son in the book, and that is Arlene Eisen, uh, And you talk about the 2012 report, Operation Ghetto Storm, uh, when it was updated in 2014, um, was around the time we saw the mainstreaming of the term every 28 hours, right? Uh, That there's been this assertion and general acceptance that police kill on average 1,200 people each year in this country, approximately three people a day. How accurate do you think that is? Or how much worse do you think it could actually be?
1: Well, we know that the accuracy is in question right now. We don't know how many people die at the hands of law enforcement. Um, the arrest-related data has always lagged behind in this country if it's being collected at all by our law enforcement partners. And so, I don't. Th- I think it's absolutely going to be worse. Uh, I don't think we have a handle on it at all, quite frankly. And so, um, arrest-related deaths were were, were only really Um, looked at for a short period of time in in the late 2000s, um, mid to late 2000s. And so um, today we don't even know how many people are dying associated with arrests in this country.
0: There was also a study that came out in 2019. Uh, that showed that one in a thousand young Black boys and men would be killed by law enforcement in America, meaning police murders are a leading cause of death for Black men and boys in this country. In fact, the seventh leading cause of death, according to this report. Given that we are just 13% of this country's population, what is the magnitude of that number?
1: Well, I'll I'll be honest. I don't know the report that you're speaking of, right? I would would love for you to, to send it to me and for me to take a look at it. Uh, and so, you know, it's hard for me to speak directly to that. But I think your point is is well taken. I think that in order for us to really understand uh, and, and prevent the problem, we're going to have to understand the data surrounding it. Um, and, and any public health issue and any issue of social justice in this country, if we don't, if we can't quantify it, then quite frankly, it only exists in the individual's that are affected by it and what we're trying to do with this book and what we're trying to do with our podcast, Official Ignorance, uh, we're trying to bring information to community to let them know, just as you are, to say, listen, this is not just one event that is a heinous act. There's a system of these deaths that are occurring associated with the criminal legal system that both in the arrest related phase, but also in the incarceration phase, both from the homicides, but also our natural deaths, accidents, and suicides are affecting our community. And we don't know how many people are dying under those circumstances. So this is not these are not just single acts that we see on TV and and can put name to. It's a series of events that are happening in our country that we need to be looking at as a as a full fledged problem.
0: I talk to young people uh, often, and I guess about nine years ago, uh, because usually when I start talking, I start talking about Oscar, right? Mm -hmm. About nine years ago, I was looking at a a sea of college freshman faces. And before I started, I realized that I actually had to ask that room if they even knew who he was, because not only were they so young when he was murdered, but since that time, if we just say we're going with the number of 1,200 a year, right? The magnitude of that number of names. Yet and still, uh, no national, really, tracking system. We're going to talk about DCRA next. Mm. Say the name of your podcast again.
1: Official Ignorance, the Death and Custody podcast. You
0: talk about part of why there are no actual systems, or as we'll get into in a second, the utilization of systems in place, uh, as willful ignorance.
1: Mm. Talk about that. We've been we've been tracking death in this country for a long time. The Centers for Disease Control, the National Center on Health Statistics, we've been tracking death for a long time in this country and quite frankly have the most robust and the most accurate death tracking system or vital record system in the world. Really no no other country comes close. And that vital statistics system, how many and under what circumstances babies are born in this country, and how many, and on what circumstances deaths occur in this country, that is being emulated or attempted to be emulated all over the globe. I'm part of a, a group of researchers that's helping to support forensic pathology globally. And so I know how important vital statistics are, and I know how well the United States does it. The fact that we're not willing to track deaths that are associated with the criminal legal system is willful ignorance we are making a decision not to know i've asked I've, I've spoken to the individuals that make the decisions on what goes on a death certificate and have been told that they're not going to put the death in custody checkbox on the u.s standard death certificate I'm sure we'll get to that because that's my stump and the fact that we are required to capture these deaths, but we're required to capture the deaths from the Department of Justice. So we're asking a criminal justice entity to do a public health responsibility, a public health function, whereas no other deaths in this country are we asking the criminal justice system to track. Why are we asking the criminal justice system to track death and custody? We need to be asking the vital statistics system, the health record system, to track death and custody, and that's the centers for disease control. So I think the CDC and our healthcare sector is getting a pass on not collecting this data. And and, and let me tell you this black women, and we, we know that black women are, are die at a higher rate from maternal mortality right? And we know that that's a big issue in our community. Yeah. The reason why we know black women die at a higher rate is because there's a checkbox on the U.S. standard death certificate. The reason why we know that smoking is associated with certain types of cancer is because there's a smoking checkbox on the U.S. standard death certificate. The reason why we know motor vehicle collisions, who was the passenger, who was the driver, bicyclist, motorcyclist, all of those individuals. The reason why we know that is because there's a series of check boxes on the U.S. standard death certificate. The fact that if someone died while working, that's on the death certificate. So the death certificate is a robust tool for us to understand the circumstances and how people are dying in this country, but yet we're unwilling to use that death certificate to track how many people are dying at the hands of of law enforcement and in our criminal legal system.
0: How much of this willful ignorance, uh, Dr. Mitchell, collides with, from your perspective, you're a black man, uh, with anti-blackness that has permeated the founding ideologies and current practices of almost every single institution in this country?
1: The only way that we can disconnect this presumption that the reason why we're not collecting this data is because of institutional and structural racism is to get the data. That's the only because at its face, yes, at its face, it feels like racism.
0: Well, I mean, I just feel like if 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 it was the same for white folks, and and not that white people are not killed by police in sheer numbers, actually more so, it's the the per capita issue for us. That
1: maybe maybe we would be doing that. But that's the point. The point is, is that not enough of our poor white counterparts are speaking up about this. Right. Right. Because because we forget our poor white counterparts when we're having these conversations. And my co-author, Jay Jay Aronson, you know, he always says, why is the black guy worried about the poor white people? But but I, but the reason I am is because to suggest that poor white people aren't dying at the hands of law enforcement is to forget a, a, a big swath of the population that we need their voice just as much as our voice. And the reason why we know that's true is because look at the opioid crisis. That's right. Poor white people are dying at a higher rate and higher numbers from the opioid crisis in this country. And it has been deemed properly, properly as a public health problem. Substance use and abuse has always been a public health problem. When my father was succumbed to crack cocaine when I was a child and was, was was addicted, it was a public health problem then, during the 1980s, when they were putting our mothers in jail for 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 being addicts. It was a public health problem then, and it's a public health problem now. Death in custody is a public health problem. And we do not know the epidemic proportions that it is affecting community and particularly um, black community. Black communities have been brutalized historically by law enforcement. Jail systems have been, been built on the back of black folks in this country. And this is not propaganda, this is real history. This is real truth. The reality of it is is that is that until we can understand it appropriately, it is always gonna be looked at through the lens of racism. And when we're looking at it through the lens of racism, it gives our white and and other counterparts the ability to look the other way and say it's not their problem. And that's my pushback on it, because it is everybody's problem, just like gun violence is everybody's problem. But because homicides find their way into black communities more often than white communities, It seems like it's not a white problem, but suicides are hugely a a white problem in this country. But we need to be talking about these things so that we can bring more people to the table and have real conversations about how we can collect data and establish prevention constructs and tear down the spaces and places where structural structural racism lives.
0: You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Cap Brooks, in conversation with Dr. Roger A. Mitchell, Jr. about his book that he co-authored with J.D. Aronson called Death in Custody, How America Ignores the Truth and What We Can Do About It. So many directions I could go from there. But I think because uh, the last thing you sort of talked about uh, a bit was, was history. Y- you build your, your case to this book through historical narrative uh, and you start with lynching. Tell us the story of June 15th, 1920, and what happened in Duluth, Minnesota.
1: Well, the reality of it is, is that in Duluth, Minnesota, there were were young men not too far from where George Floyd was killed. And a lot of the times we think of lynching as a Southern problem. But it was in Duluth, Minnesota, that we we had the death of men that what we saw from them hanging um, in a postcard. Uh, we've heard that postcards were generated during lynchings. And one of the most iconic postcard was from out of Duluth, Minnesota. Their names were Clayton, Jackson, and McGahee. And it was a mob and gang that that hang these men. And the reason why we we talk about and start our book in the lynching era is because these were extrajudicial killings of black men and women, and some white men and women as well, in this country. These were sanctioned extrajudicial killings, individuals that were not able to get their day in court. And so we start there because of the work of journalists like Ida B. Wells. Right. And Ida B. Wells wrote the the red record, and she gave name and she gave power and she gave circumstance to individuals that were being lynched all over the country in, at the turn of the century. Started in her hometown of Memphis when a friend of her who was a shop owner and got lynched got murdered. And so she, from then on, was on a crusade to categorize individuals that were were being lynched. And it was because of her efforts that lynching slowed in this country. And it's been because of journalists' efforts throughout history that we even know of issues surrounding death in custody because the government doesn't track these deaths.
0: You mentioned uh, George Floyd in in your answer and and you do fast forward then a hundred years later uh, to Minneapolis, Minnesota and his murder. What comparisons, albeit, as you note in the book carefully, can and should be made between the public lynchings of 100 years ago, Red Summer, for example, and the murders of black people by law enforcement today, including the fact, of course, that in both of these types of tragedies, accountability remains scarce
1: and fleeting? Well, I think that the reason why, and this was a, this was a point of contention between Jay and I, this is, you know, we, we went through this over and over again, how we should start this book. And I, I maintain that we should start it with lynching. So for example, during the during the lynching period in the antebellum south, when a lynching happened, then it would go to a coroner's inquest. As you know, I'm a forensic pathologist and so I'm I'm of the lineage of the coroner. The coroner establishes cause and manner of death in this country. There are still coroners in this country. Actually, the majority of Medical legal death investigation systems in this country are coroner systems. Medical examiners are board-certified forensic pathologists where MDs, coroners can be an elected official or they can be a physician. They don't have to be a forensic pathologist. It is the up to the local jurisdiction on whether or not that occurs or the, the, what governs it. But nonetheless, that coroner inquest in the antebellum South in lynchings would often find the death as at hands of unknown persons. Hands of unknown persons. There would be a whole group of individuals, as I just described in the in that postcard in Duluth, Minnesota. Whole group of individuals pointing and looking, even having picnics. There in 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 this country, there might even be newspaper articles saying, "Come to the lynching on Sunday." There would would be definitely a group of individuals there, and everybody in the environment would know who killed those individuals. But yet, the coroner's inquest during that time would say deaths at the hands of unknown persons. Usually, if it said deaths at the hands of unknown persons from the coroner's inquest, then there may not be a prosecution. There might not be a prosecution of anybody. There might not even be an investigation because the coroner determined that you couldn't find out what happened. Let's fast forward 100 years from now where there are diagnoses like excited delirium. Come on now. Manners of death called undetermined. We know that in California today like the diagnosis of excited delirium is outlawed. You can't even put excited delirium on a death certificate in, in the state of California, because we know that, that that term and that concept is not a medical diagnosis to cause death. But for decades, it has been used to describe how black men have died in the custody of law enforcement. And their manners of death, and there's five that we can choose from, homicide, suicide, accident, natural and undetermined, their manners of death have often been accident are undetermined. And when a prosecution and prosecutors will tell you that they don't need a manner of death of homicide to investigate the death, they'll tell you that they can investigate any death no matter the manner. But the reality of it is, is that if that manner says undetermined and that manner says accident, and it suggests that no one was responsible for that death, then they will not investigate. They will not look to prosecute anyone. We make the connection in the book of deaths at the hands of unknown persons during the lynching era and the undetermined death of a black man in the altercation with law enforcement as a similar through thread. And so those are the connections that we make. And and those are the connections that we want our readers to make. And those are the connections that we want our detractors to make. And we want to debate those connections. We want to research those connections. We want a full database so that so that it can be in public discourse. How many undetermined cases are out there surrounding individuals that that come into contact and are dying at the hands of law enforcement?
0: There was one more thing in this chapter that I want to touch on before we move on because I'm, I'm clocking time and I and I, I do want to get to the solution piece of this conversation. Um, but you say at the time, you know, that lynchings were happening. That white and black people alike, particularly black folks of you know a, a middle class, uh, accepted at least the rationale of lynching because they assumed I think the words exact words you use are their lower class brethren had done something that warranted it, mm. and that got me to thinking about the differentiation which class sees middle and upper class black folks versus lower class black folks even today, and how that can be a divider amongst our people on this issue. I'll give specific examples here with the local chapter of the Oakland NAACP clamoring for the National Guard to come into Oakland. Also defending a corrupt police officer with the Black Lives Matter slogan. Uh, We saw it in Ferguson, right, the division uh, of black people even there between it being middle and upper class black folks, right, and and poorer working class black folks. I wonder if you could connect the dots there from then to now.
1: Yeah, I think that institutional and structural racism as a function is built to separate the classes of black folk. I think that, 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 is, that is part and parcel of how structural racism um, maintains its, its power is this notion that we should all be afraid of one another. There is a parallel. I didn't live in the 1920s, right? although I'm a throwback, I like the 1920s. <laughs> I like those eras, the 1919, the, those eras, that's my study era and, and reconstruction. Right, right after, right after, right after slavery, we know that just as there was detractors and individuals of black upper class that looked down their nose at the movements of the time, right? Even during the civil rights movement, there were several upper class um, black people that looked down their nose at. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, there were also upper class black folk that were writing checks and being supportive of the movement. I'm hesitant to suggest that any movement of liberation in our country would be an all-inclusive concept. And let me, let me, let me unpack that. If we wait for everyone to get on board with liberation and the method in which we're using to get to liberation, then we will never get there. I don't think there will be any time in history, even past, present, or future, that our movement is going to have 100% buy-in across class, gender, sexual orientation. I don't think it's gonna. I don't think it happens like that. Being a student of the movement, I know that it requires bold leadership and people to step out on what. Now, now I'm a faith guy, right? On what God is telling them to do. There's, there's, there's never been a time where liberation was fully supported. The, the, the full support of liberation has always been in hindsight. It's never been while things are happening. So. You know, that's the through thread. I, I, I expect that people will hear this this podcast and this interview and not agree with me and want to tear it down, right? Because 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 of whatever reason. Right? So, um I don't know if that answers your question, but but I'm not disillusioned to suggest that, that we have to be in this whole sale agreement of blackness for us to move forward. We, we we our job is to do what we're called to do and do it um, without without apology.
0: You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Dr. Roger A. Mitchell Jr. about his book that he co-authored with J.D. Aronson called Death in Custody, How America Ignores the Truth and What We Can Do About It. All right, Dr. Mitchell, let's spend a little bit of time talking about what we can do about it. You've talked a bit about uh, adding a a checkmark on, on the death certificate. Say a little bit more and also talk about what precedent exists for this change to happen.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a data geek. I like data. I think data is, you know, as a scientist and a physician, I think, and especially the, a person who signs death certificates for a living. That's that's functionally what I do as a forensic pathologist. I do cause and manner of death. I do autopsies. Um, you know, one of one of uh, you know a small uh, group of Black forensic pathologists in this country. Um, and 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 so I believe that the way we understand the death that happens in this country is to utilize the death certificate. You know, there are two things that every citizen in the U.S. gets, and that is a birth certificate and a death certificate. Everything else in between, I can't call it. But what you're getting, you're getting a, death, a birth certificate and a death certificate. And I and and those that are dying in the criminal legal system, a system that is peculiar in that it removes the rights of the individual. And now the full care and safety of that individual is in the state's hands. The state has a responsibility to tell us when death happens and whether it happens under natural circumstances or accidental circumstances, suicidal uh, homicidal or, or, or unknown, we need to be able to understand those things so that we can improve conditions when conditions need to be improved, improve ways of handling when things need to be improved, or quite frankly, completely restructure our system to ensure that um, uh, life is 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 maintained and preserved. And right now, we don't know. And so the what we can do is is first gather the data. we gathering the data, be the ultimate solution? Absolutely not. There's no. W- once we knew how many people were dying from cancer due to smoking, that was just the beginning. Then there needed to be class action suits to ensure that big tobacco was held responsible. Then there needed to be educational initiatives to make connections between smoking and cancer. Then there needed to be research portfolios that is the highest research portfolio in the National Institute of Health or NIH to do research on, on uh, uh, cancers and the different types of cancers and where they start and, and, and how, they, how they can be treated. Then there is direct uh, molecular testing that now you can create treatments that is specific to the tumor of the person that has it right there's innovative innovations in ai and 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 other technologies all from cancer but where did it start collecting of data on a death certificate so the so the work that we will do to improve the outcomes of our people that are incarcerated or or to be incarcerated by the system the work that we do to understand How they die is to then improve how they live. And that's the, and it starts with that data. It is a well proven public health model. There is no public health model that has decreased death in this country that has not started with death data. Another example COVID. I was the chief medical examiner for Washington, D.C. during the COVID epidemic. While I was there, I set up one of the most successful mass fatality operations in the country low key we had outside refrigerated trucks and drash tents and and the national guard and 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 volunteers moving bodies in and out and we provided personal protective equipment to Uh, to funeral directors. And one of the things that we we had happen is the Centers for Disease Control reached out to all of the providers that were signing death certificates for individuals that were dying from COVID and said to us, could you please put on the death certificate acute respiratory distress syndrome complicating COVID-19 infection? This will allow for us, and then put the comorbidities, obesity, Um, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, pulmonary embolus, if you could put those in part two of the death certificate, then we'll be able to track those death certificates real time. So all of the death data that was on the national news and all the dashboards that we were going on and looking at and how we know that older black women and men were more susceptible and all the data that we understood surrounding the COVID epidemic, It came from a real-time death certificate initiative, but yet I'm being told that we can't do the same thing for death in custody. It's a choice that we make to turn that public health infrastructure on, and so we need to do that. The other piece on what we can do about it is I've run and built fatality review committees in the District of Columbia. Fatality review committees are extremely important. Maternal mortality fatality review committees establish how we can treat our women uh, better and ensure that they have better outcomes during childbirth. Fatality review committees of death and custody are critical in this nation if we're going to not only understand how many people die through the death certificate, but then a retrospective review of these deaths to be able to understand what policies and procedures and interventions need to be had in order to decrease these deaths. So those are two big interventions that we think are going to to really lead to to better outcomes. The other piece is I'm, I'm the Speaker of the House for the National Medical Association. The NMA is working on um, correctional health and correctional medicine, trying to bring more uh, qualified physicians into correctional medicine. We're looking at the Medicaid inmate exclusion policy that removes Medicaid for anybody who goes into our federal and local prisons. Um, these are the types of things that we want to bring to bear so that we can have the public researchers as academics and practitioners on the same accord.
0: You run off sort of a a list in the book about what people will say about why this cannot or should not happen. I I wonder if you could give some of that to my listeners.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because I was told – I've been doing this for a long time, twenty-five years. I've been on this stump, right? And I'm just so happy that I got on your, on your, on your, on your podcast, cat. Me you know, too,
0: I, I, sir. Oh, you stuck I, with me
1: now. <laughs> listen, I done, I, done, I done finally made it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you stuck with me, sir. <laughs> I'm here. You know, I done made it. But, but what I've been told along the way is that, you know, compliance with the checkbox is not something that can, that is really um something that happens overnight. It you know, I was once told that you know, by CD by C D C officials, it could take up to fifteen years for a check box like checks box like this to get full implementation. And I said I, I said to him, I said, well, you know, my people were enslaved for four hundred. So I'm good for fifteen. Fifteen years? Huh. That was that was 5 years ago. If we had done it 5 years ago, we would only have 10 years left. I'm only 50 years old. Even if we start now, I will take 65 fully implementation of a of a death and custody checkbox. Right. You see what I'm saying because at the end of the day we're saving lives. See, see don't let's not get this mistaken. For me, this is as 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 much as it is about as much as much as it is about the liberation of marginalized and disenfranchised and disinherited people, right? it is about the health of a a whole nation. We, We institutionalize and arrest more people in this country than any other country in the world. And so our people, the American people, are affected by the criminal legal system. And so if the criminal legal system inherently is unhealthy, inherently leads to death. And we're not talking about individuals that may have, you might say, well, why are we worried about individuals that commit crimes? We're talking about, there's some people that are in pretrial, cat. These are people that haven't even haven't even seen their time in court for petty theft and are dying from their, from their cardiovascular disease or diabetes because of improper care. We're talking about much more than just, and, and, and I'm not minimizing the homicides and the and, and the violence that's in our community because the violence inflicted on our community and in our community must be stopped. We have to solve for it, and that's part of this too. But I don't want it to get lost that I'm I I I'm 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 worried about the diabetic that needs proper that needs proper uh, um, care uh, for their end stage renal disease as well. Um, so, so, so there's a litany of reasons why we can't do it. Um, but, but the benefits, uh, outweigh, outweigh the, outweigh the, the, the things that, that, that suggest that we can't.
0: Yeah. And I'll just say, and, and, and we do have to wrap up and I heard you, and this is like, absolutely not to show you have to do that on, um, cause my, my listeners are pretty radically left like myself. Um, But I imagine that is a question that you get, right? This assumption that every person that is in custody and maybe dies while in custody or in the process of arrest or whatever somehow deserves. Yeah. Yeah. as if we don't have a criminal legal system that in theory (laughs) is supposed to have a process and as if like some of the families I work with, far too many of them have loved ones Who died of an overdose.
1: While inside.
0: While inside. How is that not still the state's responsibility? Right? Because
1: you are are in their care, correct? It's 100%. It's 100%. And that goes to why is there not true medical-assisted drug therapy in our federal prisons? Right? Because we still... And and you're going to see the majority of individuals that find themselves incarcerated have some health problem, whether it's a mental health problem, a substance abuse problem, whether it's a physical health problem. Invariably, they're going to have some level of trauma, some level of health care, some highly organic need in our system. But yet we refuse to treat our criminal legal system really as big hospitals with safety issues.
0: Listen, and I've talked to folks on, on the inside that are saying I'd rather die naturally of whatever is wrong with me than go to medical and have their help kill me.
1: And, 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 that, and, and, and I can believe that, right? And I know a lot of health care providers in the, in the, uh, providers in the correctional system, good health care providers in the correctional system. But that being said, we need to ensure that that's across the board, right? Across in every jail, and prison, and in and in our CBP borders, that that we have correctional health that is there to 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 improve the life of the individuals that come into care with them. Because at the end of the day, that's what that's what the oath we took, the oath I took, the MoTEP whole oath, the Hippocratic oath. Those oaths were were to do no harm. Those oaths were to ensure that the life and safety of those individuals we come into care with. And so that means that if the system we operate in does not allow us to keep that oath, then we fight the system. We ensure that the system is friendly to us, providing care to those that need it, to the less, to the least of us. And 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 so absolutely, people are going to say and have said to me. You know why do we why why should we care? Well, you know it's it's I'm a forensic pathologist. Nobody nobody cares about me until their loved one dies under suspicious circumstances, and then they look up and say, "What the heck? We need we need a really good forensic pathologist." But yet, forensic pathology and medical legal death investigation systems in this country are poorly funded, and it's not until you need us that you want us and that's the same thing it's not until you have a family member that is connected to this system and that system does it poorly that you say man we need to reform and 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 that's that's the work we have to do and that's the work by by being on your show and writing the book and you know us doing our podcast is hopefully people will will start tapping in and saying you know what even though i don't have someone personally connected to this to this broken system i'm still going to use my my influence and use my resources to to further this cause
0: wonderful words to end on you all you have been listening to law and disorder i'm your host cat brooks our guest today has been dr roger a mitchell jr a professor and chair of pathology at the Howard University College of Medicine. He is a forensic pathologist who previously served as a chief medical examiner and deputy mayor for public safety and justice of Washington, D.C. His book that he co-authored with J.D. Aronson, Ph.D., and that we have been discussing today is Death in Custody, How America Ignores the Truth and What We Can Do About It. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for this conversation.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law & Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.